Uh, thank you for taking time out of your day to attend this training. My name is Andrea Garcia. Um, on my maternal side, I'm Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara. And on my paternal side, I'm Mexican. I'm also a physician specialist um, with DMH, and I work out of the American Indian Counseling Center. So before we begin, I thought that it would be important to, um, to sort of meditate on what why the title is um, Indigenous Health Flourishes Where Ancestral Love is Nourished. And so if we think about that for a couple seconds, again, I'll say it, Indigenous Health Flourishes Where Ancestral Love is Nourished. Indigenous Health Flourishes Where Ancestral Love is Nourished. Um, I wanted to give you or start out with some visual and audio representations of what that might mean and then let the rest of the presentation um, sort of fill you in on, um, on what we mean by that in practice, especially in a clinical setting. I want people to know that I am not scared of being who I am and that I embrace myself as an inner person and I'm not ashamed. I hope I encourage others to do the same. To throat sing with my mom is a connection I can't explain. It's a lot more than just a song. We connect with our ancestors, our voices. I feel like I teleport when I practice my culture. For me, it's important to change people's views because we were always put down. We were always told what to do and what not to do. The message I want to send to the Indigenous youth is you are capable of anything. Don't let anyone take away your identity. Be you, you are beautiful. And shout out to Sephora for making such a culturally appropriate video. Um, and then we'll just uh, go with one other um, visual slash auditory uh, representation of what we think um, Indigenous ancestral love uh, means. I thought of your spirit and how you came in a time of resilience as the world is fighting for their lives. I thought of your ancestors and family who have prayed for you to arrive safely. I thought of your daddy, Tomas, and the unconditional love with which you were brought into this world. I thought of the corn pollen path that you have and how blessed I am to be there as your mommy, guiding and caring for you every step of the way, my love. Surrounded by Hajon, welcome to the glittering world, my sweetheart. So I thought it was important again just to start by showing of your spirit to um, beautiful uh, depictions of what um, we see as native um, love, ancestral love, and um, all that goes into um, bringing life into this world and, and living in a way that our ancestors um, 
died for and, and fought for. Um, so I hope you too enjoy, or you enjoyed those two videos. And um, also wanted to shout out our native young people. They're younger than me, so I can call them young people um, who are uh, really doing the work to reclaim their identities and bring that, um, reclaim those teachings and bring that um, back forward and in, into forms that we can digest in the present day too. So I also think that it's important um, to kick off this presentation by acknowledging that I um, am sitting on the ancestral homelands of the Tongva people, particularly the Gabrieleno people. Um, I acknowledge that I, as a Native person, am also a guest on these lands. My homelands are in the Dakotas. Um, if you have never seen this practice before of um, recognizing whose land you're on or, or where or how to find out whose land you're on, um, you can visit nativeland.ca to um, pop in a zip code or an address, and that can give you an idea of whose ancestral homelands you are, which is different from reservation lands. Um, the other thing that I think is important to point out is um, if you as an individual or an institution are thinking of um, adopting this land acknowledgement practice, which is becoming prevalent um, worldwide even, um, there is um, some important caveats to that. And so um, a lot of people, a lot of Native people think that, yes, it's important to acknowledge, um, to be acknowledged, it's nice, right? Um, and a lot of Native communities are asking, well, okay, so you acknowledged us, now what? And so um, the second link provided nativegov.org is one of the many resources that you can find that talks about what it means to move beyond just a land acknowledgement, but to also incorporate um, action plans, actions behind your words, um, to get to know the local communities within which you work, so that it becomes more than just words, right, at the beginning of a meeting, but actually forming those healing, therapeutic relationships um, that are so needed today. So I just leave you with those two resources um, as we all um, learn to acknowledge the folks who were dispossessed of their land so that we could all be here today. So we have a lot to do during this presentation. Um, hopefully by the end of this, you will all be able to describe how at least two federal Indian policies have impacted the demographics and health outcomes of Native folks in urban areas. Comment on the complexity of Native identity and how it may be associated with access to healthcare. Recognize how your own identity can impact the quality of patient care. And then lastly, uh, demonstrate at least two examples of tension that can arise within evidence-based practice and cultural humility uh, slash anti-racism um, practices, um, especially within mental health care. All right, so before we begin, um, I realize that the title is Indigenous Health Flourishes or Ancestral Love is Nourished, um, but this particular talk is going to focus on American Indians and Alaska Natives. Um, given the unique government to government relationship we have with the United States um, and how structural racism uh, via federal Indian policy has specifically impacted um, this population of folks. Um, I do want to take the opportunity wherever I have it, though, to acknowledge our um, 
indigenous relatives from uh, both north and south of the so-called borders, right, in um, Central and South America and also in Canada and all of our indigenous relatives um, everywhere throughout the world. In particular, I know in Los Angeles County, um, a lot of our indigenous relatives are migrating up um, particularly to our region. And I know that a lot of our DMH facilities um, often serve these populations. So I would be remiss if I didn't point out at least one of the organizations who were doing the hard work of working with our migrant indigenous communities. Um, so mycielo.org is listed below. These are kind of hot spots of where um, uh, recipients of their services are within Los Angeles County. Um, and it's also important to point out the, the linguistic diversity of our uh, relatives south of the border or so-called border. Um, and also just point out how important it is to recognize that we need um, culturally appropriate services even within like the diverse indigenous community, right? It's not just one thing to say check, like we've we've got it, we're, we're serving everyone, but there is so much diversity within each of our communities as you'll learn today. So I just wanted to take a second to acknowledge our um, indigenous uh, relatives again. But for today's purposes, we'll be focusing on American Indians and Alaska Natives. So um, this is somewhat outdated census uh, information. I haven't gotten my hands on the most recent count, but roughly 5.2 million American Indians, Alaska Natives reside in the United States. I think it's upwards of 7 million at this point. Um, we have a young population, 1.3 million under the age of 18. We actually have a huge proportion of Native veterans um, compared to other races in terms of um, how often we serve. And um, there are over 574 federally recognized tribes. Los Angeles County contains the largest population of American Indians and Alaska Natives um, compared to all counties uh, within the United States at 165,000. Again, this is likely an underestimate. So this part of the presentation, um, I would like to ask for your participation. We're gonna read a couple vignettes and I'll ask for volunteers to read the vignettes. But as we go through these short, short um, stories, I'd like to ask you to keep in mind the following questions. What types of identities do people share about themselves? How do they relate to these identities? In what ways is intergenerational trauma and resilience passed down? And describe at least one example of how a structurally racist policy can be tied to the health and wellness of one of the characters. So I'm gonna have a little difficulty seeing. So I'm wondering if Isabel can help point out if folks volunteer or you can just jump in. Um, but I will need a volunteer for someone to read Jenny's story. My name is Jenny and I am Navajo woman. What is that, Dene? Mm -hmm. Okay. Perfect. I was born in 1933 on what is now known as the Navajo reservation. I was raised by my mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother in a traditionally Navajo culture. I lived a simple but plentiful early childhood with my family. I spoke my language fluently, herded sheep and other livestock, my family and I tended to the land, participate, participate in ceremonies and attended frequent family gatherings. 
When I was about eight years old, my siblings, my siblings and I were forced to attend the local Indian boarding school. It was only later in my adulthood that I learned that boarding schools were a tool used in the assimilation era of federal Indian policymaking, also known as kill the Indian, save the man. As a student at the Indian boarding school, I was not allowed to speak my language or participate in anything related to my culture. Instead, I was forced to learn English, learned about Christianity, and I was beaten when I didn't, didn't obey. Only now do I realize that there were the roots of my trauma, that these were the roots of my trauma that influenced a lifetime of psychological, emotional, and physical and spiritual challenges throughout my life. Only now do I realize that I reinforced many of the teachings I learned in boarding school, including speaking only English to my children and hitting them when they didn't obey. I'm ashamed to say that I often denied my true heritage in public, and I only shared who I really was in the comfort of my home or when I visit family on the reservation. Thank you so much. So um, for all of the participants on the call, if you happen to have a birthday between January and March, you are considered the relatives that attended boarding schools as a result. You have higher rates of substance abuse, physical and psychological disparities. You are less connected to your traditional culture. You didn't teach your children to speak Navajo. Your way of disciplining your children was to hit them. And again, this is a manifestation of the federal policy called assimilation or federal policy era called assimilation policies. Do we have any volunteers to read Melvin's story? Yes. Um, my name is Melvin and I am 67 years old. I moved to Los Angeles as part of the Indian Relocation Act, an act that encouraged American Indians to leave reservations and gain vocational skills in major cities such as Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, etc. It was really tough being away from my reservation and the money wasn't as good as they said it would be. I turned to drinking and soon it got out of control. Luckily, I was still in touch with some of my tribal, <clears throat> tribal members out here and they were a big part of helping me get cleaned up and getting on the red road again. I also found some Indian agencies that could help me with services. I now dedicate my life to helping Indian people because it was Indian people who helped save my life. Thank you. All right, so people on the call, if your birthday falls between April and June, you are a direct descendant of Melvin. You are one of his children or grandchildren. You grew up in Los Angeles and learned bits and pieces about your tribal history. Some of you have never visited your family on the reservation, while others of you have made strong connections with your extended family. And again, this is um, outlining the effects of the policy um, era called relocation. Can someone volunteer to read Raquel's story? My name is Raquel and I am 24 years old. I was adopted by my parents when I was a baby. Even though I had a pretty decent life, I struggled with being adopted and my identity. I finally accepted that I am gay, but my parents didn't. I hit rock bottom when I was homeless for about six months. Now I have my own place and I'm getting the mental health services that I wished I always had. I guess I'm finally explaining things about myself that I tried to ignore. 
like the fact that apparently I am Apache and that I was really supposed to be adopted into my tribal community as part of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Sure, I guess being Apache sounds cool, but I'm just trying to get my head right first. I'm not really interested in finding out what that means right now, and I wouldn't even know where to start. All right, so folks on the call, if your birthday happens to fall between July and September, you are one of the children who benefited from implementation of the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. In 1978, a whopping 25 to 35% of all Native children were removed from their homes and a majority were placed outside of their communities and extended families. You are one of the 44% of Native children in modern times to be placed within your tribal community. You know who your relatives are and you were exposed to your cultural teachings. And again, outlining in the Indian Child Welfare Act, which hopefully many of you have at least heard of um, as this is something that um, LA County um, participates in. All right, and who wants to read Joe's story? You My name is Joe and I'm 35, 34 years old. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I'm native on my mom's side and an African-American on my dad's side. I grew up knowing I was both native and black. Lately, I've been feeling a little down and stressed out from all of the social upheaval. I feel like I can lit literally be killed or jail jailed and day, any day just because of the way I look. My mom said that because the stress was affecting my job and my social life, I should talk to someone about it. Because I was between jobs, I didn't have insurance, so I went to the local Indian Health Service Clinic. I didn't have my certificate of degree of Indian blood document, and I didn't feel like jumping through all of the hoops to prove my descendancy to qualify for services. I ended up getting services at a non-native clinic. When I mentioned that sometimes I can hear my late grandma's voice talking to me and giving me comfort, I got a weird look and now they think I'm crazy or anyway, even though I feel like I don't fully fit into either of my identities, I know who I am and that helps me tremendously. Okay. So if you're on this call and your birthday falls between the months of October and December, you are enrolled members of, fe of a federally recognized tribe. You also have your CDIB to prove it. Although you now live in Los Angeles, you can go to any urban Indian health organization to access healthcare, culturally sensitive healthcare that is. Okay, so again, active participation on this one. I'm wondering um, what folks picked up on identities that people shared about themselves and how did folks relate to their different identities? Or let me ask an easy question. Was anyone surprised to see the different types of Native folks, like phenotypes of how, how Native folks looked in these stories? I know that I can identify with the Apache because I know on my dad's side, my grandmother and the ancestors there through the Apache. Um, I didn't realize how much Native American I had, even though... Um, I mean, I'm 100% Mexican-American, but I never realized it was 42% of Native American. And when I saw it come up, especially when you're doing the birthdays, you know, of, of when you're born, I find that 
just fascinating, you know, of, of how you relate. But this is what drew me to this particular um, training was because it caught my eye and I was expecting to learn more about, you know, the, the Native Americans because I know it's very much part of my culture. Um, and I also know that there is generational trauma um, that comes with it as well. So um, that, that's how it worked for me. Thanks for sharing that, um, especially your personal experience. And there's probably a reason, right, why um, you have Apache ancestry or ancestors, um, but don't know about it. And so I'm wondering, like, according to these stories, at least, um, you know, it could have been at some point, uh, maybe some of your ancestors were went to a boarding school. And so it wasn't, it wasn't encouraged to learn um, about your culture and teach it to subsequent generations. Um, maybe you're, maybe there's um, some adoption in the family and they were removed and that was the end of that sort of cultural knowledge. Um, but there could be a number of reasons why a lot of folks aren't necessarily connected, right? So thank you for, for sharing that. I'm checking the chat. Um, some of my black colleagues at DMH have shared having indigenous ancestry. So this isn't the first time seeing mixed folks of native ancestry. Thanks for um, pointing that out. Yes. So I think um, what mainstream media does, and again, just because of the sheer lack of education about native people, right? In our educational systems, um, there's the assumption that native people have to look a certain way, but just like, other folks and other groups, we are a, um, a myriad of shades of colors. Um, we have Afro-Indigenous folks as much as we have um, Native folks who are also half white, right? And so, and plug in all of the different races um, that we are mixed with. And so that is not a coincidence or a mistake. That is a direct result of colonization right? Settler colonialism throughout the years that have drastically changed our demographics. Um, also, if you want to pull in the policy side, a lot of us were encouraged to move to big cities. And so cities are diverse places. That's how my parents met. Um, my grandparents came on relocation. My mom was born and raised here. She spent some time on the res, but then they came back and that's where she met my dad. My dad's Mexican. That's what happens when you push people to big cities. Um, and so that the, the, the range of identities that people have in these stories, I wanted to uplift again to counter this narrative that Native people need to look a certain way or act a certain way or speak a certain way or live on reservations. Um, if you haven't figured out by now, as a result of relocation, the majority of Native people, almost 75% live in urban areas as a result of the relocation policy. Um, the last thing I wanted to underscore is that, um, as you saw in Raquel's story, so someone, and not unlike many of our clients at EICC, um, the adoption process has really um, shaped the way that people relate to their identity. So if you come across a Native client um, and maybe they know they're Native, but they don't know much, like, that's okay. Like, everyone's at different stages in their identity and, and understanding what that means to them and their own family histories. And so ICWA, again, 
has had a big part in sort of trying to repair the harm that's done during the adoption process. But just to point out that Raquel knows she's Native, um, but she isn't quite ready to understand or explore what that means, right? And so if you encounter someone in real life, doesn't mean like, oh yeah, hey, like you should go to that clinic over there, American Indian Counseling Center. If they want to, great. But if not, you know, folks are human and they're at different stages in their, um, their development, right? Um, can anyone explain how intergenerational trauma and or resilience was passed down in any of the stories? And I can scroll back so you can jog your memory. I, I think I see kind of two different themes throughout. And one is that um, through the various ways people were separated from their heritage and their people, um, there's a lack of knowledge, right? And, and the trauma that comes along with that, or that they do understand or have some knowledge. And that knowledge is of a history that's broken and um, fragmented. Um, so in terms of resiliency, I think that those who are able to either understand or, or be connected to their heritage, have a certain level of resiliency. Um, but those who are fragmented, you know, I've had, I've done a lot of work in looking into where I've come from and that's helped me develop a sense of who I am. But without that, I might still have had a level of um, recognition of myself but it would be without the context of all of the ancestors behind me. Um, and so I, I think that there's, the, re, the resiliency comes from having a sense mm -hmm. of where we come from. And the disconnection means that people are, are in that uh, experience of, of generational trauma. So just the lack of knowing can be a part of the, or an aspect of that generational trauma. Love those words. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, okay, last one. Um, can anyone think of any concrete policies, structurally racist policies that can be tied to the health and wellness of one of the characters? Yeah, I was thinking about the individual um, who was adopted in a non-Native home. It was making me think about ICWA and our policy really to place children in um, Native homes. And if that person was placed in a native home, I wonder, made me think, I wonder if they would have been accepted as being two-spirited, uh, maybe because it, it might be more in that culture, or there might be some more understanding, as opposed to being placed in a home that might be, um, you know, evangelical Christian or, or something that's not congruent with um, that individual's native culture. Yeah, I think that's a really good question of how, how that could have potentially helped that person for sure assuming that family still retained those teachings, right? So it's, there's just so many variables, but yeah, absolutely. Um, and then for, it sounds like it is on to some knowledge that many, that perhaps um, folks might not know here, but um, in a lot of indigenous communities, uh, there are a myriad of um, gender identities 
and expressions, you know, it's not just binary, it's continuum. And um, folks who identify as two-spirit as like the more modern term, right? Kind of like this pan-Indian term. Um, we know that it's not only a gender identity or expression, but it's also a set of cultural values and responsibilities that come with being a two-spirit person. So two-spirit people, um, often have this cultural knowledge and um, different roles that they play within their communities um, that they also try to um, pass down to one another. So that that understanding um, for sure, it seems like would facilitate um, better mental health um, compared to, you know, what folks unfortunately have to encounter in dominant societies. So having that knowledge and grounding perhaps might help them fare better. Alrighty, well, thank you uh, for participating. Any last comments before we move on? Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment more towards the inter intergenerational trauma. Um, Jenny really stood out to me because I'm like, this is my grandfather right here, um, everything that's said. And, and I think just, you know, as cultures are blending together, you know, just the racism within the family unit as well. Um, you know, my mom and some of her siblings that were darker were not accepted by the white family. And there was a lot of racism towards that. And I could definitely see that um, addiction and alcoholism just being um, passed down. So I just thought, like Jenny Starr, I just thought that was really interesting um, that that was shared because I just really resonated a lot with that. Um, and that led me to like the racist policy, you know, that they thought it was best, like, let's just like send these kids to the school and like get them assimilated and just ripping out their culture and their roots and everything that they know. And, you know, seeing pictures when my grandfather first started the school and so when he graduated and um, I'm in contact with everyone um, north and south of us and, you know, for unfortunately, you know, having folks that their relatives didn't survive some of these residential schools as well. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of emotions that came up with Jenny's story. So I just wanted to thank you also for sharing that as well. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, and I have shared this in um, mostly Native settings, too, and it, it, it was heavy. It brought up a lot because a lot of people have ties to that. So um, thank you for, um, for sharing your story and also for being here, doing what you're doing, for making your people proud. All right, so this is just a personal reflection. Um, we're not going to discuss this out loud, but um, think to yourself, how has your own family history been impacted by structural forces? Or has your family benefited from these systems? Has your family benefited from redlining policies or folks being pushed out of neighborhoods? Um, can you identify intergenerational trauma and resilience that might have been passed within your family? always important to know these things. And what are the ways in which structural racism and community resilience has shaped the work or has shaped the community within which you work? And as providers, it's so important to know your local context and your local community. So if you work in East LA or Boyle Heights, like it's important to know um, about the Chicano moratorium, right? If you work in South LA, it's important to know about the impacts of redlining because those 
large um, historical events still have ripple effects today and, um, and your clients are most likely still suffering the impact um, of what happened not too long ago. So just again, being aware of who you serve and where you serve at the super um, hyper-local level is important, right? And so this is also um, something that we will um, just think about on our own, in our own heads, but I love this social identity will because it um, outlines the many different intersections of identity that people carry with them, that people wear every day and bring to the table. And so um, it, looking at each of these categories, what are the identities that you think about most often? Um, are you um, a native English speaker? If you're not, you know, maybe you think about how English was not your first language and this is constantly on your mind because you want, you want to make sure that you can connect somehow. I'm not sure. Um, do you think about your gender all the time? Um, and how does that factor into your interactions with your patients, clients? Um, and what identities do you think about the least and why is that? Right. Like, I don't necessarily think about my um, physical ab abilities. Right. Um, because I'm lucky to to not uh, or to be able to have all of the abilities that I think are necessary to function in the world. But um, what about folks who um, who have to think about this on the day to day? How does that impact them? And. I guess lastly, like how do these identities that you think of right now, um, how do these impact your client interactions? You know, how might a client who shares none of the same identities, how might that impact the way that you're interacting with this person? Very, very important things to ask about us. And um, I think we probably all by now learned about implicit biases, but how does implicit bias show up and when you think about these identities yourself? Okay, so um, this next part is less interactive, but please jump in if you have any questions or comments. Um, I'm going to talk about the symptoms of federal Indian policymaking among natives in Los Angeles today. So in LA County, um, again, we have the largest population of American Indians and Alaska Natives. Um, unfortunately, more than 35% of our native children live beneath the federal poverty level um, and almost one out of every five families included. Educational for our um, LA County native population is low, unfortunately. Almost a third of our population doesn't have a high school diploma. And yet, um, about a third of our population does have some college or associate's degree, which is great. Um, even though we are entitled to healthcare, which I'll talk about in a little bit, um, interestingly, folks are almost a quarter of the native population um, was uninsured, and this is old data, but um, was uninsured during this time period. And this is a slide that, again, I like to, um, I like to frame as symptoms of uh, federal Indian policy making, right? So you think about the trauma that we talked about that was passed down um, and how that plays out in suicidal ideation um, amongst a real community right in LA County. 
So um, if you look down here, this uh, column is Native women. So almost 40% of our Native women in LA County have ever thought of suicide. That's almost half, right? Compared to less than 10% of all women in LA County. Federal Indian policy also plays out in our diabetes death rate, for example. So almost 65% of, or 65 um, Native women in LA County die from diabetes per 100,000 compared to only 18.6 of all women in LA County. And how am I tying this to federal Indian policy making? Um, there is, um, there was a disruption in our, our relationship to the land and the way that we grew food and the way that we subsisted on livestock even, but also um, the, the federal food distribution program, which was also known as commodities, was pretty unhealthy food. It still is pretty unhealthy that were distributed to our communities once we were pushed to reservations. And so it's no surprise that disruption of these once healthy um, ways of living um, ultimately resulted in disease, chronic diseases like diabetes. So that's one example. And then you can see the other stats, but this is um, essentially how we are in the present day seeing the manifestations of the disruption of our ways of being. Um, and also important to know um, if you work in Los Angeles is how um, Native folks can access their healthcare. Right? So as I mentioned before, the US government is legally obligated to provide healthcare to American Indians and Alaska Natives. And this is based on numerous treaties, compacts, contracts, in exchange for cessation of land, natural resources, and countless lives, languages, and culture law. So we're one of the few populations entitled to healthcare. And that um, provision of healthcare is um, carried out by the Indian Health Service, which is under the Department of Health and Human Services. And this was codified, I believe, in 1956, more or less. Um, unfortunately, the Indian Health Service is drastically underfunded compared to other agencies under the Department of Health and Human Services. So for instance, if you look at Medicare spending, which is also under DHHS, they spend almost 13,000 per capita or per beneficiary. The VA spends about 8,800 per beneficiary. Medicaid enrollees get about $7,800 per capita. And then all the way down here, you see IHS spending per capita, again, which is a small population served um, at only about $3,332 per Native individual compared to the rest of these systems. Um, what that means is that the Indian Health Service is funded only at about 56% of the actual need um, of healthcare services. Even more disturbing is that even though I said earlier that more than 75% of Native people live in urban areas as a result of this relocation policy, only 1% of the IHS budget is dedicated towards urban Indian health. I'll say that one more time. So even though 75% of Native people live in urban areas, only 1% of the IHS budget is dedicated towards urban Indian healthcare. 
Um, and as you might have picked up in uh, the story, it was Joe's story. Um, he said he didn't have his CDIB card, which basically is a card that proves you're Indian, right? So first of all, like what other group of people have to prove their identities, right? Via a card, disturbing. But um, sometimes having that card means you're federally recognized or state recognized um, and you have access to healthcare. If, however, you are one of the tribes who were terminated, so I think about our, um, our local tribes whose status was terminated by the state of California, Unfortunately, they have a much harder time trying to access the healthcare that they, in fact, are entitled to as well. Um, so we're going to talk about this thing called evidence-based medicine and how that intersects with culturally accepted practices. So um, if we are trying to move towards decolonizing our healthcare systems, that has to mean that there is um, an equal balance, again, of quote, evidence-based practices, which we've all gone to school for and understand, but also how cultural competence or anti-racism um, and respecting communities' um, inherent power and, and healing practices sort of fits into those evidence-based practices, right? And the systems within which we work. So, um, Number one, I have to say that these don't have to be mutually exclusive ideas. And so, as we all know, just to review, evidence-based practice often um, requires rigorous scientific evaluation via clinical trials, et cetera. Um, however, a lot of these studies and trials are very monocultural um, and include um, diverse communities like very infrequently. They're trying to get better, but that's still the case. Um, also, they try to apply the results of these studies to standard clinical practices. Again, if you're only studying certain groups of people, how can you standardize these practices to diverse communities like the folks that we serve? Um, oftentimes they're the only interventions that are reimbursed. Um, I'm not aware, maybe somebody on this call knows, but, um, you know, like, can we have traditional practitioners and can we get reimbursed as, um, you know, or clan or clinics or, or, um, delivery systems, um, get reimbursed for those practices as well. I don't think so. I haven't heard of that, but if you know, please let me know. Um, and then often, again, these are narrowly prescriptive practices and approaches. And then the, what often is the, um, considered the opposite of evidence-based practices, um, cultural, cultural-based practices, right? And so what we know is that there's a cultural divergence in how people experience, um, psychosocial, um, symptoms, right? And then there's also different ways that, um, some groups might, uh, exhibit stress or illness or even well-being. And then there's also, um, in many communities of color, a preference for um, treatment within group contexts um, and different types of therapies and therapists, right? And then again, this idea of competing conceptions of evidence, like what is evidence? Just because we um, didn't prove it in a clinical trial doesn't mean that, you know, um, other ways of proving that things work via qualitative methods, et cetera, um, aren't evidence enough. 
Um, but the flip side to this idea of cultural competence, which I hate that idea uh, <laughs> or uh, language, is um, the danger of making generalizations. And so if we were to say, like, we're going to create this American Indian curriculum, um, we know that that is nearly impossible because there are over 574 federally recognized tribes, right? That's just um, tribal people. And we're not counting our relatives from north of the border or south of the border. Um, there are over 128 different languages that we as American Indian Alaska Native uh, people speak. And so again, this idea that a one size fits all, even for an American Indian curriculum, is a dangerous assumption. And so we just have to be nimble and constantly changing um, or adapting to who we are serving, right? And what um, input that we can get from, from those knowledge holders and experts. And so I just wanted to go through a couple, um, this is just like a very small amount of studies that are out there that look or that have attempted to, um, I guess, to make into evidence uh, American Indian, Alaska Native, like cultural studies, right? And so um, Joseph Gahn is a prolific um, investigator slash psychologist out of Harvard who's done an, a myriad of studies um, on the intersection of uh, culture in American Indian communities and evidence-based practices. And so he asked a, a group of folks in an urban area, like, what would you want in a traditional healing program? And what he or what they said was, we want to be able to have our folks participate in ceremonies, we want traditional education, we want culture keepers, and we want community cohesion um, if we were to have a traditional healing program in our urban um, organization. But what they also found was it's not that easy to make, um, to make such a program for all the reasons that I listed before, but also as they point out, um, you know, we would want these traditional healing protocols, but also the reality of living in an urban area and having people with all of these obstacles due to their incomes, et cetera, is also really hard to balance, right? Um, it's also hard to have multi-tribal representation, um, versus like creating a, a sort of like, well, we're going to do the sweat lodge, but what if not everybody sweats in their own tradition? So, so balancing that tension as well. Um, and then there's the enthusiasm for traditional healing versus uncertainty about who's trustworthy. Um, so I know I can just speak for myself. Like I grew up doing ceremony with, you know, people that my family trusts and respects and, and just because that I grew up doing that doesn't mean that I'm going to naturally gravitate to someone who I don't know, right, or who my family doesn't know or, or can't recommend. And so that's also um, an obstacle of sort of gaining trust, even within our own communities. Um, and then lastly, the integrity of traditional healing versus the appeal of alternative medicine. So um, I think what they were getting at is... Um, I'm assuming that the alternative medicine is like those um, those traditions who might sort of take what they want from um, from different cultures and traditions, right? Um, versus really going to the source of um, who, where that traditional healing is coming from. 
Um, and here, I definitely want to shout out um, two folks in our backyards who are experts. So Dr. Daniel Dickerson and Dr. Carrie Johnson. Dr. Dickerson works at our American Indian Counseling Center, and Dr. Johnson works at United American Indian Involvement. Um, they are constantly pumping out studies um, of how bringing culture into the mental health space makes our um, youth in particular, but our community in general healthier. And so this is an example of one of their studies where they're using motivational interview, interviewing and culture for urban um, Native American youth. And so they had all of these different arms, one with motivational interviewing, plus just um, community wellness gatherings, and then just community wellness gatherings. And essentially their early findings were alcohol or drug use remained stable for both groups and there was no significant differences between the groups. So um, even though that might not be like a finding of like, yeah, a culture makes it better, they didn't really have a control group because um, in this trial, they thought it was important for everyone to get the um, community slash cultural intervention. So that's another thing about conducting studies within our communities. Um, oftentimes our community advisory boards think that everybody should get the intervention, which is great. Uh, but then again, when you're trying to produce evidence, like how, how does one balance that, right? Um, this next study uh, looked at um, historical trauma and unresolved grief intervention, which is specific to our community. Um, plus using group interpersonal therapy. And essentially they showed that depression scores significantly decreased for both treatments, but there were no significant differences in uh, depression for the groups. So essentially like adding this cultural element didn't diminish or take away from um, this commonly accepted evidence-based practice. Um, however, clinicians expressed preference for this culturally um, culturally tailored intervention based on um, observations of greater perceived gains among the participants. So the clinicians thought that participants um, benefited more from the cultural intervention. Um, and lastly, I think, uh, so this was a survey of Native youth in the Great Plains and um, those youth who had community connections used less marijuana, essentially, is what they found. And higher community connection scores were associated with higher social support and self-esteem scores. So we see that indeed being connected to one's community does make a difference. Um, this is something that Dr. Carrie Johnson and Dr. Dickerson are working on actively. They've been doing it for a couple of years now, but essentially um, their intervention is uh, teaching youth how to um, powwow dance and how to make regalia and how to sing. Um, and essentially their early findings are that participating in this program strengthens their behavioral health, um, learning about their culture strengthens their identity and participating um, in this program strengthened their connections. And so this is an ongoing project, but something that's really exciting um, to see in the community when you see the participants, the youth in this program, um, dancing in powwows, et cetera. Um, and then, so I gave you a bunch of evidence um, from the literature, but this is also from SAMHSA, um, the agency itself that, um, 
says that it's important to incorporate historical trauma and resilience um, when caring for native communities, um, to always incorporate the role of culture and cultural identity um, that exists, to um, acknowledge the significance of community, um, and also value their, the provider's own cultural awareness. So again, like even if you're a not native person, that's fine, just so long as you know your own identity and, um, and what being culturally aware means, right? And then um, SAMHSA also says that it's important to have a commitment to culturally responsive services. Um, and I thought this was especially key um, working in a system that we all work in. So the significance of the environment of having um, native providers, of having um, professional development opportunities, of having native vendors, et cetera, et cetera. So making sure that those are there to support our um, community as well. So um, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the American Indian Counseling Center where myself and Dr. Daniel Dickerson, who you heard about worked. Um, so AICC, was created in 1987 at the behest of the American Indian Alaska Native community. Um, it's one of the few county operated American Indian mental health clinics in the country. Um, I personally don't know of any other county run clinic that focuses on native folks anywhere, but um, so I think it's really special in that regard. And really a testament to um, LA County's commitment uh, to native people as well. Um, AICC provides Native community members, families, children, a safe place where mental wellness is fostered through delivery of comprehensive mental health services, um, both from a multidisciplinary and culturally relevant lens. And as you can see from this photo, we have a diverse staff from different cultures and tribal backgrounds. I don't know the breakdown of how many of our providers are Native, um, et cetera, but um, we do, we do in fact have native uh, folks who work there and we have non-native folks who work there um, and all bring incredibly rich and important perspectives to the work. Um, so we at AICC um, definitely try to operate with intention as it comes, as it relates to serving um, our clientele. We don't just serve native people, obviously as a county clinic. Um, but we also believe that um, the groups and the classes and the things that we do can also benefit our native, non-native clients, right? And so um, Dr. Dickerson and Dr. Kane recently formed um, a cultural committee that's comprised of our staff members. And it is a collective decision-making process. Um, we decide what cultural education we want to um, have in place for our staff. Um, it's also, it has been in the past, a place to discuss um, cases as it relates to culture, right? Um, we also develop a lot of our programming and we've also had some crucial conversations there. So um, yeah, it's, it's been very real in, um, and, and a safe place to have those conversations where one might be able to say like, hey, um, you know, that thing that you said or you did, I didn't really, um, I didn't really think that that was an appropriate and we've sort of, um, it's been a space for us to hash those out as well. Again, all in a safe and respectful place. Um, we're also trying to institute a client ad advisory board where they can also tell us what they would like to see as far as our cultural um, appropriateness and in operations. 
And then we've had a number of groups um, in the past and present, and also some on pause due to COVID. Um, but the Wellbriety group, um, which is our own sort of native version of um, sobriety or like this 12-step program, um, we've had walking groups in the past. We um, formed a partnership with a local park for cultural education and access to the land, right? Um, and then we have a plethora of other native culturally uh, relevant classes. Uh, we just got off a meeting today where we're wanting to have a traditional cooking class um, and um, educating our folks about um, traditional foods and all of the things. So um, that's another idea. Um, and then we also pride ourselves on our partnerships with other native nonprofits in the community who oftentimes can be more nimble um, as far as drawing down resources or um, hosting things um, that our community members can be invited to or vice versa. So for instance, we just had a heart healthy uh, class where we collaborated with one of the local nonprofits and they brought some of their clients um, into the space as well, which was great. Um, so we try to do this as much as possible because we know that none of our native organizations are as strong as all of us working together. And so it's pretty amazing the types of um, resources we're able to bring to our clients as a result of those relationships. Um, we also do research. So again, Dr. Dickerson and, and all of his studies, um, he also started a gardening program, which is on hold, I believe right now. Um, and I myself have partnered with um, USC and another native researcher to implement a Native American diabetes program where the intervention is our participants will get meals, they'll get culturally relevant education, and they'll also get paired up with buddies who are also Native. Um, some of our staff, or a lot of our staff, are very connected to the community. And so oftentimes volunteer in many different spaces. So one of our therapists, um, I think is the organizer for the many winters gathering, which um, happens once a year where they bring in elders from all across um, Turtle Island to come um, and spend time with us for a few days um, and give us the cultural teachings that um, we so badly desire and also um, perform ceremony with us too. And so our um, clients are certainly welcome and have access to that as well, but it's just another way um, that shows how our staff um, in their personal lives go above and beyond trying to make these opportunities available for our clients and community members. All right, so um, as I wrap up, um, thank you all for sitting through this. I kind of consider this like a Native 101, right? Like, what's the brief history? Who are the players now? Who's at the table? Like, how does one clinic like AICC implement cultural practices with evidence-based practices? Um, but also, I would be remiss if I didn't have any recommendations on where we could all go from here. So... From the institutional perspective, um, I always advocate for honoring the expertise of your diverse staff and crafting their job descriptions and expectations accordingly. And what I mean by that is sometimes, you know, we are all beholden to billing and making sure that our clinics can run. 
Um, and if you also want to have certain cultural elements to this, these things take time. It takes time to win the trust of community members. It takes time to reach out and engage with potential vendors that can come in to our space and teach. Um, it, it takes time just to do things in a very thoughtful and intentional way. And so oftentimes a lot of our um, clinicians are doing things on their own time, right? And um, sort of providing that labor and that emotional labor for free um, after hours. And so to the extent possible, making time for these things to be done on the job because we know that it's the best way to deliver care to our community and to our clients and our patients. Um, also, to the extent that you have control over this, put your budget where your values are. If you really say you develop or you uh, value culturally responsive healthcare, then making a budget for that and providing the opportunities um, to bring in what we need to bring into the clinical setting so that our patients can benefit from it as well. Um, also suggest implementing a mandatory, not elective training on indigenous identity and health, including structural determinants and indigenous ways of knowing. Um, this is a very self-selective group. Thank you all for coming, but what would it mean if all of our respective employees um, had to go through a training like this? How much more knowledge would be out there? How much could our, how many more individual clin clinics can benefit from this type of information? Um, also recommend developing reciprocal relationships with local tribal communities. I will say them. Um, we are on the ancestral territories of the Tongva folks, like I mentioned, where I'm at, but also the Frenendenio Tatavian Band of Mission Indians, as well as their Chumash relatives. Those are the three tribal groups um, whose land we are, um, whose land we sit on in LA County. So knowing who they are, but also making an effort to build relationships with them, as well as the multitude of um, indigenous community-based organizations that are out there. Um, and then also from a systemic perspective, leveraging key windows of opportunity, such as Kel-AIM, which we are all aware of at this point, um, ARPA funds, which I think have come and gone, um, whatever anti-racism, diversity, and inclusion initiatives there are, um, leveraging these windows of opportunity to make sure that culturally-based programming is um, available, right? Committing to and investing um, and deeply exploring anti-racism in the workplace, how does that manifest in the way that we are forced to interact with each other, right? That's a whole presentation to itself. Um, and also, if you have any say-so over data collection, don't perpetuate demographic erasure and demographic genocide. That is, collect and report data in consultation with Native people and other Indigenous communities. Don't define them in a way that the Department of Finance dictates. Um, Native identity should be defined by Native people. And I will say the same for other communities like our Asian Pacific Islander communities, right? Like our Hispanic Latino communities, like our um, LGBTQ communities. And I'm proud to say that um, DMH has recently started collecting um, both sexual orientation and gender identity questions. And then they're expected to implement um, tribal identity collection within IBIS. So round of applause for that. And we still have a ways to go as far as um, collecting and reporting um, folks who embrace multiple cultural identities. 
Um, and also to the extent possible, if there are cultural skills that we can add to our electronic medical record, that would also be extremely important in knowing if our culturally based interventions are um, helping move the scale on that. And then um, one community member mentioned making our hours more accessible. Um, you know, mental health happens all the time. Um, and they also, they often want access to us beyond like this eight to 5.30 sort of window. And so how else, I know that we have certain teams dedicated to that, but how else can we be accessible and, um, and do the community work on the weekends, for instance, too, so. Um, as far as like individual clinics, definitely recommend um, doing your research about the community within which you work. Um, and also who are the local nonprofits and tribes close to you, right? Um, partner with indigenous people and organizations, always a plus. Recruiting and hiring indigenous clinicians and staff is important. Subcontracting with indigenous organizations and vendors. Um, and multidisciplinary partnerships are always encouraged. And then from the individual level, um, it's extremely important to do the self-work and the hard work of learning your own story um, and considering using the social identity will in this practice. So what are your um, privileges? What are the identities that you prioritize and how is that different from folks that you serve? Um, also do the self-work and the hard work of committing to learning about anti-racism. And if you want more native curricula, here's a couple um, references there. And I believe that's it. Yes. Mazigirak, uh, which means thank you in my language. And I hope you all learned something. If there's no other questions or comments, I can leave you all on a pleasant video to round out your afternoon.
divine Why don't you help your brother when you see him fall Why do we act like God don't see it all Why do we call them black, them white, them Asians and use labels Now that's racism I don't wanna Why? I don't wanna Hawaii I don't wanna Hawaii I don't wanna Hawaii Why is there innocent people locked up for life? While some people can't say nothing nice Why do we always gotta question what all of it means? And why won't you follow your dreams? Tell me why The night when you took my dad Why'd you let me see my grandpa cry? And tell me why And why do you choose to hide Even though you was born to fly? And tell me why And why don't we turn from all the hate? Why do I keep on wrecking these fat beats And teachers don't make more than professional athletes And why, and why, and why, and why, and why I don't want no way, no way I don't want no way, no way I don't want no Hawaii. I don't want no Hawaii. I don't want no Hawaii. I don't want no Hawaii.